And the next piece of information is that I'm delighted to have David Rubin with us visiting from the University of Chicago to do today's Medical Grand Rounds. And you will hear about him now from Corey Siegel. Corey is an Associate Professor of Medicine and of the Dartmouth Institute. He's the director of our IBD Center. Uh, and I believe this is one of the, this is the sixth time that we're doing the annual IBD lecture. And Corey will tell you more about that. Great. Thanks, Rich. Good morning. It's uh, my true honor to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. David Rubin, who's visiting us from the University of Chicago as our sixth annual IBD visiting professor. David uh, was born and bred in Chicago. He went to the University of Illinois for college, and then has been at the University of Chicago for his uh, medical school training, residency, and fellowship, and then was hired as junior faculty there under the mentorship of two real giants in our field, Dr. Steve Hanauer and Dr. Joe Kersner. If, for those of you who don't know Dr. Kersner, Dr. Kersner just passed away a couple of years ago at age 102, and David and he were very close. In fact, uh, one of my most memorable days in my career was David taking me uh, for breakfast with Dr. Kersner after we picked up sandwiches from Obama's favorite deli and went over for breakfast with Dr. Kersner, which was an incredible uh, experience and in hearing his philosophy about the, the beginnings of inflammatory bowel disease, which, of which he was very much part of. David has been a real leader in our field. He's published nearly 200 journal articles, hundreds of abstracts, dozens of book chapters, including editing his own book. He's been an associate editor or editor at most of our major medical, or most of our major GI journals, leadership in most of the GI uh, societies around the world, and has really taught us a lot about inflammatory bowel disease. David lives in Chicago with his amazing boys, Danny and Michael, and his wife, Becky. And I would say that David has become the top leader in our field, being known for being able to assimilate the evidence base with real practical care. And I think you'll see from David that he has a lot to teach us, not just about practical care of patients, but about the history of inflammatory bowel disease. And, and you can see why he's a thought leader, and probably, I would, I would argue, the top thought leader who's emerging from our country and around the world. And we're just proud to have you here, David. So thank you. Well, what an honor for me to be here this morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's really a distinction to visit, uh, and Corey had been asking me for a couple years, and I'm, I'm just delighted to be here, especially since yesterday was Corey's birthday. Uh, and so we celebrated that as well. I keep telling everybody. I also keep, I keep reminding everyone that Corey's much older than I am. He mentioned to you my mentor, uh, Joe Kersner, and of course my other mentor, Steve Hanauer, but when I met Dr. Kersner, I was a first-year medical student, and my grandmother said, uh, go see if my doctor's still there. And I had just started at the University of Chicago, and I didn't know what she was talking about, and I was quite naive. And I said, well, who's your doctor? And she said, well, his name is uh, Joe Kersner. He's a legend. Go see if he's still there. But he was really old when he took care of me, so I'm not sure he's still around. <laughs> and so as a naive first-year medical student, I just looked him up in the, in, the, in the directory, and I went up to his office and knocked on his door without an appointment. And he came to the door and answered himself. And he had one of these old academic suites where he had, like, two secretaries in his own conference room and the whole thing. But he answered the door. And I said, Dr. Kersner, I'm a first-year medical student. My grandmother said she was your patient and asked me to come by and say hello. And he said, oh, come in. Tell me about your grandmother. 
So my grandmother told me that she had Crohn's disease, but I didn't know what Crohn's disease was. I had never heard of it before. We never really talked about it as a family, as you might imagine. And uh, as I started to tell him who she was, he said, oh, I remember your grandmother. She was in one of our early trials of steroids for Crohn's disease. And then got up and walked across his huge office, opened one of those long uh, horizontal file drawers and pulled out a paper. And he said, your grandmother's in this paper. <laughs> and so I was sure he was just pulling my leg, right? This is the the, the thing you do to the first-year medical student. So I called my dad when I got home and said, Kirsten remembers grandma. And my father said, well, nobody ever could forget your grandmother. <laughs> but what I later learned, of course, was that Kirsten never forgot a patient. And in fact, she was his patient. But I didn't know anything else. And so years later, after we all make our different career decisions and I end up in this pathway, I decided I would find out if my grandmother really had Crohn's disease because I thought it would be a great way to start a lecture to say, you know what, I looked her up and she had an irritable bowel. <laughs> um, but in fact, after tracking down her records, and there's a whole version of that story, we did confirm that she had Crohn's. And in fact, one of my GI pathologists found her paraffin block from 1955 and cut new slides and stained them for me to show me that she really did have Crohn's disease of the colon. So there's a story there. The other thing about it is that I met Kirzner when he was 81 years old. And you heard already that he lived to be 102. So I actually had a 20-year history with a man who I met when he was 80. So for those of you who are feeling burned out with your electronic medical records, imagine seeing patients until you're 95 and then continuing on every day until, you, um, until after you're 100 years old. I think that probably is depressing for some of us. Uh, and he was an amazing role model, I have to tell you. And there's many more stories where that came from. But now you understand the meaning uh, and how, um, how much it touches me when the university um, named me the Joe Kersner Professor. It's really something that I hold very dear to my heart, and I try to preserve his legacy and what he did. And what he did best was take care of patients. And what he always said was that any research we do should come back to the patient who's suffering. And I keep reminding people of that when we're um, trying to make sure that our mission is preserved in this, these changing times. This is the University of Chicago campus. If you haven't been there, our medical center is on campus. This is the main campus you're seeing here. These buildings were built in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. This is the Harper Memorial Library. William Harper was the first president of the University of Chicago. You can see the skyline up here. We're only about 10 minutes from downtown Chicago. I live in this area over here somewhere near uh, where our former president also has a house. This is our medical center. Um, the cruise ship here uh, is our new hospital that opened a few years ago, and the third floor of that giant building is all digestive diseases, and uh, we're very proud to work there, and it's a nice place uh, to, do our, to do our business. Now, I'm going to present to you a Grand Rounds, um, and it's 100% my own. I also am going to give you a little foreshadowing. At the end of my presentation, I'm going to also share with you 10 years of research that um, we think is leading to an understanding of what causes ulcerative colitis. So stay tuned, and you'll get to get a glimpse of some of that new work. But we're going to talk about a disease that you may not see as an individual in the Department of Medicine, um, but one that I think teaches us a, a number of lessons about managing complex patients and understanding the emergence of sort of the modern uh, diseases uh, in the modern immune diseases in the changing environment of the world we live in. So we'll start with a case. What better for a grand rounds in the Department of Medicine? Uh, this is a real case. I extracted it from my own clinic. Uh, it's an 18-year-old male who had four months of rectal urgency and frequency and was waking up at night with these symptoms. So of course, that's a red flag. Um, 
saw blood with the bowel movements and had even one episode of incontinence, which we know, of course, is devastating to anyone, let alone an 18-year-old, uh, felt nauseated. I was a senior in high school, um, by his mother's description, was stressed, um, doesn't smoke cigarettes, uh, and had no family history of GI or immune problems. He does have a sister who has um, early onset uh, insulin-dependent diabetes, and there was, <clears throat> excuse me, no prior surgeries. On physical exam, he was uh, thin. His BMI was 21. His abdomen had some minimal tenderness in the left lower quadrant. There was tympany on the right side of the abdomen, which I'll come back to, and uh, careful perianal inspection was normal. I always remind our residents and even our fellows um, the importance of doing a careful exam of the bottom when you're seeing patients with abdominal symptoms. Um, remember that Crohn's disease can present with perianal manifestations. It's important to take a look down there. Even if you don't have much experience, you shouldn't ignore that part of your physical exam. Uh, and on laboratory evaluation, he was uh, mildly anemic. He did have an elevated C-reactive protein, a slightly low albumin, uh, and routine stool studies for infectious organisms, including Clostridium difficile, were negative. So a diagnostic test is performed. So I'm a gastroenterologist. You can imagine what diagnostic tests we're heading towards. But before I show you his, let me just remind you what a normal colonoscopy looks like. Uh, the mucosa of an intact colon is um, glistening. The blood vessels are distinct. And discrete. You can see them quite nicely there. Uh, and the um, color of the bowel wall is sort of fleshy. Uh, this is clearly a healthy colon. This is not our patient. Our patient, on the other hand, looked like this. Uh, you don't have to be a gastroenterologist to appreciate this isn't normal. There's loss of the vascular markings. It's more of a diffuse inflammation with some exudate. You can appreciate some spontaneous bleeding and friability when the scope bumps into the wall of the colon. Uh, and this is uh, consistent with some type of colitis. Now, we don't know what kind until we look at our biopsies and we finish our evaluation. But given his age and given the chronicity of his symptoms, you're already thinking this might be an inflammatory bowel disease, especially because he lives in the United States as opposed to other parts of the world. So the biopsies, um, and this is actually his biopsy, demonstrated a few things. There was an acute infiltrate of uh, inflammatory cells, but very importantly, there were some chronic changes. So you may recall that the normal crypt architecture of the colon should be like lined up test tubes. In this case, you can see there, there's some distortion to them, there's some branching, uh, and that represents some chronic changes. And this is consistent with the diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. In this individual's case, um, we want to think now about his prognosis and what the extent of his disease was. And I already gave you a clue to that, and I remind my fellows and, and uh, students that when you examine a patient carefully, you can often determine what the extent of their disease is before you do any other testing. In his case, the colonoscopy confirmed, of course, um, that this was only involving the left part of his colon. And it's a fascinating feature of ulcerative colitis. We don't quite understand what determines extent of inflammation. On physical exam, the tympany on the right side was a clue there because when people have distal inflammation, they have decreased motility in that region and they end up with a proximal um, constipation. So it's the uh, paradox of having urgency but also feeling bloated and constipated. So when patients describe those symptoms, they're not out of sync. That's actually because they're just not able to pass as well through areas that are inflamed. Um, it's also interesting when you start learning more about what's going on in the colon that, that the large intestine is probably four different organs. It's the the right colon, the left colon, the rectum, and then the anal canal. 
And so in this case, we're talking about somebody who has the rectum and the left colon involved. People with ulcerative colitis almost always have the rectum involved, and then it's more diffusely involved as it extends upwards. And about 50% of people diagnosed with distal colitis will have progression of the disease over time, and we don't understand why this is. On the other hand, younger patients, and I mean children who are diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, almost always have their entire colon inflamed at the time of diagnosis. So that may represent a more genetic driver to their uh, onset of disease, although that hasn't been confirmed. So what is IBD, and why is this uh, relevant to thinking about the next steps? Well, I think we can think about other immune conditions in the United States and throughout the world now when we consider inflammatory bowel disease. This is a chronic intestinal condition that is of unknown cause so far, uh, and there are different patterns of bowel involvement and disease behavior. The phenotype of the disease tends to be broken into Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, but we've come to appreciate that there's probably 50 or 100 different types of inflammatory bowel diseases that are basically lumped into these different um, characteristic patterns. The symptoms, of course, vary depending on the location of the inflammation. And what you're seeing here on the left is a classic image of somebody with ulcerative colitis, where it's more of a diffuse inflammation with some exudate. The middle picture shows you a more classic picture of Crohn's disease involving the colon, where you can have patchy ulcerations um, interspersed with normal mucosa. And then 25% of patients with Crohn's disease will have the dreaded perianal manifestation manifestations where they literally have uh, penetrating disease that can cause quite significant quality of life issues, as you might imagine, as well as destruction of the tissue in that region. So although we break them into Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis based on patterns and the descriptors of these diseases, I do want to emphasize that we now recognize there's quite significant heterogeneity between these two conditions. And the reason we haven't reclassified IBD yet is because we as a field haven't done a good enough job determining that there should be different treatments based on these different patterns. We're getting better, but we're not quite there yet. So in the absence of saying this is ulcerative colitis type 1A, or whatever we might end up calling it, um, the reality is that we've started using response to therapy as a way to guide our individualization of um, treatments and options in patients. And of course, we will come back to our patient and how I treated him in just a minute. The major symptoms of ulcerative colitis are due to an inflamed rectum. I remind people that you take your rectum for granted until it doesn't work properly. Um, the rectum is an underappreciated organ. It has four major functions. It's there so that it can store, it can sense, it can stretch, and it can squeeze. So when you lose any one of the S's, you have problems. Um, when you have inflammation, you lose all four. You can't store properly, you can't stretch and squeeze and uh, sense, and therefore patients have this sensation of urgency, incomplete evacuation. They get cramping and they have a lot of problems. And so a patient who sees you who's describing rectal urgency, and if they're seeing blood, certainly needs more workup. Uh, Remember that just because they're young doesn't mean it's an irritable bowel. Uh, people with IBD tend to be young. How did our patient get ulcerative colitis? And I love medical history. It's a beautiful uh, figure illustrated by Frank Netter, uh, who was himself a physician and just an incredible storyteller through his images. Well, we don't know, and we don't know how most people get uh, inflammatory bowel disease. The most typical story is nobody in the family had it. I just woke up one day and I had this problem. Other times we hear that someone was exposed to antibiotics or that they traveled somewhere. Um, and a, a routine story we hear is that they've been under great 
stress. But studying stress and how stress affects the body as an inciting event for IBD has not been proven. Um, studying stress as a way to understand flares of IBD uh, has been uh, done to an extent, but it's still a very difficult area to understand. Nonetheless, we listen to our patients. If they tell us that stress is what makes them flare, you know, we should address that. But I have yet to find um, somebody who can find a stress-free life and get rid of um, their disease. So that doesn't happen. Now back to my mentor. This is actually the picture of the patient who influenced his career. So Joe Kersner, like many uh, who were studying uh, and interested in digestive diseases in the early 1900s, was studying peptic ulcer disease until he met this woman. And he describes her here, and this is a real image. Um, this is what used to happen to people with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's uh, because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know how to treat it. And in fact, they often died from either um, malnutrition or infection or both. And this unfortunate woman uh, passed away and she influenced his career and he devoted the rest of his career to studying inflammatory bowel disease. So the original observations about IBD were that this was something that only rich white people got. It wasn't thought to occur or be seen in um, the underrepresented minority population. It was also a disease that occurred more often um, in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. It was a disease of the industrialized nations or the first world countries. And it seemed to occur more often in the northern hemisphere compared to the south. So people made all these early observations and were trying to understand, well, why is this occurring? There were also um, many reports in the early days that this was a psychiatric illness. In fact, there's an entire book published uh, in the 1960s uh, in New York about the treatment of IBD with um, psychiatric therapies as far as even performing um, uh, uh, lobotomies on patients to treat them for their IBD. So you can see how desperate you are when you have a disease you don't understand and you're trying to um, save lives. There were no effective treatments that had been proven and obviously had significant morbidity and mortality. If you look at this extract from one of Kersner's textbooks, you can see what the concepts were. Um, people kept coming back to, well, this must be just a complicated infection. This is like Helicobacter pylori of the stomach. We're just missing it. It's got to be there. And maybe that's true. Um, but over the years, uh, many different attempts to prove that it was an infection uh, led to dead ends. Many empiric therapies with antibiotics were not very successful. And people came back to other thoughts about this. Maybe it's a defect in the innate immune system. Maybe there's a combination of an infectious trigger with some other problem with regulatory uh, and homeostatic immune conditions. Uh, maybe there's something else in the environment that's driving this response. Uh, and of course, every once in a while, they would come back to thinking this was a, a, a prodrome of a neoplasm, although for the most part, that's been ruled out. In the United States today, the Centers for Disease Control issued a report last year that suggested there may be as many as 3.1 million Americans who have Crohn's or UC. That's one in 100, uh, divided relatively equally between the two phenotypes. Uh, frequently young at diagnosis, uh, live a long life uh, despite these conditions. So you can understand some of the costs involved in caring for these patients and the implications of that. Uh, most don't have a family history, and we've come to appreciate that it truly affects everybody. Um, this is no longer 
are thought to be a Caucasian disease. It's not a Jewish disease. Um, there may be different markers from different populations that can give us some clues, but the reality is this is not only being seen all over the United States, it's also being seen all over the world. In addition, there have been a variety of population-based studies and other types of analyses that show that inflammatory bowel disease, like many immune conditions, like diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis and asthma, are rising. Uh, in the United States, it's clear that Crohn's has continued to rise. Um, some of the analyses in the U.S. have suggested that although UC was rising, it has leveled off. And nonetheless, the fastest area of growth in the world right now is in the Asia-Pacific region, where they have a significant incidence of IBD. And in fact, in China and Japan, Korea, um, and Hong Kong, they're seeing some of the, the highest incident rates of IBD, uh, and they don't understand why this is happening. And they're turning to us to say, well, what did you do to us, and why are we getting this? And so there are some theories about all this, um, and it's a remarkable thing. So why might this be happening? Well, some people say, well, it's just happening because people are diagnosing it. That's partially true, but not enough to explain this, and certainly not enough to explain it in careful analyses of what's going on. Um, others have suggested this is a hygiene hypothesis. The world has become too clean. Our guts are hardwired to live with parasites, and we eradicated parasites, and therefore we have these chronic inflammatory problems because we don't know how to regulate the uh, immune system in the gut any longer. Uh, maybe it is, in fact, just an infection that's resistant to standard therapies and resistant to our immune system, um, but that remains to be proven. And of course, um, tying this all together may be just changes in our diet or the types of foods we're eating and how they've affected our microbiome. So lots of different theories about why this might be happening around the world. And of course, understanding the association doesn't tell us causality. So we're still struggling with this, and there's some large analyses going on now that are going to try to help us. Getting back to ulcerative colitis specifically, there are some interesting observations. First of all is the one that individuals who had a young age had their appendix removed for appendicitis, not for the wrong diagnosis, but for appendicitis, actually are protected from getting ulcerative colitis later. So that vestigial organ may have some important immune role, and removing it after someone's had an infection seems to really be protective. And this isn't just one or two studies. Many different studies of different designs continue to show the same um, result. The other that appears to be protective are diets that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids. And what has been associated with ulcerative colitis uh, is an increased uh, intake of linoleic acid, like from red meat and other types of foods. People who quit smoking can develop ulcerative colitis. It's a subset of UC. They are smokers who quit, who then start bleeding from their rectum. So they're rewarded with their smoking cessation by developing ulcerative colitis. It's a fascinating observation that's not the same as in Crohn's, Crohn's disease patients who smoke have a worse disease course, and when they quit, they tend to do better. But some people develop ulcerative colitis when they quit smoking cigarettes. And if they start smoking again, the disease goes away completely away. Like, you don't need to treat it. It's gone. So there's the ethical dilemma. Do you recommend they start smoking again, um, or do you try to treat their difficult-to-treat ulcerative colitis? And then there's been the observations that antibiotic exposure in children sets people up to develop IBD later, um, more often seen in Crohn's, but definitely reported in ulcerative colitis too. So you can imagine the, the um, extent of antibiotic exposure of children, but also some of the antibiotics we might be getting exposed to in, in some of our foods. 
So the, the current theory about IBD is that it's a combination of these different factors. Something in the environment has modified the microbes in our, in our gut that has led to an immune activation, and uh, only in genetically susceptible individuals do they then lose the ability to control this. So it's either that there's something that's constitutively triggering inflammation and an inflammatory reaction, or it turns on an um, a, a inflammatory pathway and their patient is missing the off switch or something else is not there that we need to control this. And so depending on the individual patient and the study that we're looking at, uh, it may be more genetic, as I suggested about younger age disease, or more environmental, uh, as in the older person who quits smoking. So we have to think carefully about this and recognize how complex it is. And the reason that we haven't found a cure uh, is because we're treating 100 different diseases and because it's this complex. Now, getting back to our patient, what do we do about someone who's newly diagnosed with ulcerative colitis? Well, I'll show you what was used to be done, all the things people tried when they didn't know what else to do in the eras before evidence-based medicine and before effective therapies. You can see uh, a variety of things on here, including the attempts to use horse serum and copper sulfate. Um, they did tobacco smoke enemas. There's been all sorts of different things, um, including the very first one there, which is intracolonic insufflation of oxygen. I only mention that because Corey and his group just did a sham controlled trial of hyperbaric oxygen in UC and demonstrated a very strong um, positive result. So just because it was done in the past doesn't mean you shouldn't uh, test it again if it makes some sense and get some good results. So that may be a treatment that I'll include in next year's grand rounds. Um, the historical treatment strategies for IBD, though, have been based on symptoms primarily and expectant management, meaning you'd give somebody therapy and you'd wait to see how they did. And if they didn't do well, you'd try something else. And you, you can imagine why this is a problem. Um, the patient has to be sick in order to move through other treatments. You don't have stable control of the disease in that situation. You're not monitoring them uh, in a good way. And uh, borrowing a a term from oncology, this is dirty therapy. You basically try something and if it works, you keep going. And if it doesn't, you move on to the next therapy. In fact, the approaches to doing this have involved pyramids and staircases um, and the choice of therapy based on how sick they are when you meet them, but no consideration for prognosis. Uh, so we've started to learn that this is just not the way if we're going to change the natural history of these diseases to do this. We really do need to be thinking about what's the prognosis of the individual, and we need to be one step ahead of the disease. We need to be able to monitor them for healing. We need to be able to monitor them for subclinical relapse and make adjustments before they get sicker. But I'll point, uh, point you out to the staircase there because I'm going to use that to take you through some of the treatments we used for this young man. Now, our modern goals of IBD include three major uh, features. The first one is what we call induction of remission, and that has to do with turning off the inflammation so the patient feels well. It essentially means that they're not having urgency or bleeding anymore, uh, and what we'd like it to also mean is that the bowel is healing or healed. When we finish a successful induction strategy, we move on to maintenance. This is a chronic condition. Just because we don't know the cause, as is the case with most human diseases, we still recognize this is chronic, and the absence of therapy in most patients will lead to relapse. 
relapse. So the concepts of maintenance have to do with avoidance of corticosteroids, have to do with stable disease control over time, and of course need therapies that are well tolerated and safe given how young these patients are and how long they might be on them. And only after we succeed in the first two goals do we get on to the last one, which has to do with monitoring for relapse, preventing such things as colon cancer, um, making sure the patient, if they're on immune-suppressive therapies, is protected against vaccine-preventable illnesses, et cetera. And we really just go through our steps here and make sure we're doing this in order. If you try to start maintenance therapy before you've successfully induced the patient, you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself. My patient was treated with 5-ASA therapy. Aminosalicylates are not immune suppressive. They're mostly thought to be topical in their activity, and we know that they work best if you give them orally and rectally in someone who's actively inflamed. You want to just get the drug where the disease is, and in fact, he improved. So we started out down at the bottom here. The staircase um, on the left is the induction, and because it worked, we continued it into maintenance phase. But he had recurrent disease. And why did he have recurrent disease? Well, it's not that surprising. This is the condition of anyone who's young uh, or old who's on a chronic therapy, is that he stopped taking his medicine. And this is a, a nice study that one of my colleagues and friends, Susie Kane, did years ago when she was at the University of Chicago. She was given permission at the time um, by our institutional review board to call the pharmacies on her patients and find out if they were filling their scripts. And it, that was relatively novel at that time. Uh, and the IRB said, you could do this study, but at the end of your study, in order for us to feel good about it, you have to then tell the patient that you've been checking up on them and uh, use that as an intervention and then measure what happens next. So you can see there that the patients who weren't filling their scripts on time were more likely to relapse from their ulcerative colitis. You could also probably predict what happened when Susie told them that you're in this arm and you need to start taking your medicine. The patients did, but only for six months. And then, of course, they all had the same behavior over time. So we certainly learned that maintenance therapy is needed and patients should be educated about it, but I probably have some more work to do there. So in this patient who um, took his 5-ASA, went back to it, but it wasn't working, we had to step up the staircase, and we moved on to corticosteroids. And as is true in rheumatoid arthritis, which is where we steal a lot of our ideas in IBD, um, we need to think about steroid-sparing therapy. Once a patient needs steroids, we need to be talking about how we're going to keep them off of them as we move forward. Steroids have had a dramatic effect on the management of IBD. Remember, I showed you the patient of Dr. Kersner's who died. Um, since the introduction of steroids in the 1950s, both for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, they literally changed the mortality of these conditions overnight. Of course, we later learned about all the problems with steroids. They are the most dangerous treatments we have. They're associated with the worst outcomes of all of our patients in every study that's looked at it, whether it has to do with infections or mortality. Uh, and of course, we know about all the other side effects of steroids. So we use steroids. We're grateful that they exist, but they're really not meant to be used chronically in these patients. So in this patient, um, we actually moved on to a therapy that's been well described, which is a thiopurine for maintenance. And we know a lot about thiopurines, and I told you how we we're going to think about individualizing therapy. Well, this is a great example. We know that the metabolism of thiopurines is determined by genetics, and there's a polymorphism that you can measure before you dose it. And in fact, although most people have the normal to high um, genotype and phenotype activity of this enzyme, there's a small percentage that's very important 
that don't, and therefore you would dose the drugs differently or not even use them. In this particular individual's case, though, he, like most people, had high metabolism. We dose the medicine based on his body weight, and there's a variety of other ways we can optimize it. But to move our story along, I'll tell you that he didn't respond to thiopurines. In fact, they're kind of weak drugs in UC anyway, and it's not that surprising. I know that uh, Dr. Siegel would uh, agree with his experience with the therapy as well. So at this point, we need to reevaluate. His flexible sigmoidoscopy looks worse. Um, the, that's a worse appearance than that video I showed you at the beginning. And we're looking for infections. Now he's been on steroids, so we have to worry that he may also have picked up CMV or have CMV colitis. We need to continually rule out uh, Clostridium difficile, which unfortunately has reached epidemic proportions in our IBD population, and he doesn't have either of those infections. So we're, we're dealing with somebody who's had a progressive disease course, and we're getting into trouble here. We also have learned that the appearance on endoscopy predicts colectomy. So this isn't surprising. That may sound very obvious to everyone here. But how it looks when we scope them is a prognostic marker. And so based on the worsening of his endoscopic appearance, his lack of response to a couple of our therapies, um, we're worried about this young man uh, and that his disease isn't going to be under control and he's heading towards a surgical outcome. So we move on now to our next step in the therapy, which is the anti-TNF treatments. So the three available monoclonal antibodies that target uh, tumor necrosis factor uh, have been shown to be effective for induction and maintenance in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. They were sort of the second revolution after steroids because they made such a big difference in many of our patients. But we learned an awful lot about them. Uh, one of the challenges we face in using monoclonal antibodies to treat colitis is that even mild to moderate colitis actually leaks protein. So if you're using a protein-based therapy to try and treat one of these conditions, one of the challenges we've learned has to do with the pharmacokinetics, which is that you may be administering a protein-based treatment and the patient is literally leaking it into their stool. So it's hard to get an effective dose or exposure of therapy in those individuals. So we can use the anti-TNF therapy, and in fact, we've learned how to modify and um, optimize them in different ways. This is a comparative effectiveness trial that looked at the use of the azathioprine thioprine that we tried him on already versus using infliximab, one of those monoclonal antibodies, or whether we should use both drugs together. And the study demonstrated that we should be using combo therapy uh, for many patients, especially with this drug infliximab. So we did this. We're using evidence-based guidance to help us with this man who we're getting nervous about because he's not responding. And of course, he's sick all along as this is going on. And we added infliximab to his regimen. So after we got loading doses of this monoclonal antibody, felt better, moved into maintenance phase, and then six months later, unfortunately, gets sick. Now, one of the things that comes up all the time in our practice, and I'm sure in yours, whatever specialty you're in, is the patient says, do I need to be on this forever? Or when can I stop my medicine? And that happens often. Uh, and my usual response to that in my practice is, let's see if it works first. And then let's reevaluate, because one of the biggest challenges we face in IBD is loss of response over time. So even if we wanted to use a drug forever, the reality is that many of our therapies stop working. So what happened to this young man? Why is he now relapsing through the infliximab after responding to it? Well, there are possible reasons include that he's infected, which we've ruled out a couple times, we have to think about again. The other is that um, he might actually 
be healing and responding but having irritable overlap. So that can happen, functional overlap after healing of an inflammatory condition. But the uh, other possibilities to consider would be that he's not getting enough drug uh, and we have to dose it differently, or this consideration of something called mechanistic escape. So when you're not treating the cause of a disease but rather the effect of it, you can imagine that the human body, which is quite miraculous, finds a different pathway. So you block one pathway of inflammation to try and control the disease, but whatever is there that's driving it is still there. So the human body develops a collateral pathway and goes right around what you're trying to do. How do we figure that out in the modern era? Well, we number one, make sure they're not infected and that they're truly inflamed. And then we ask, where is the drug? What's going on? So we can now measure drug levels. We get a drug level of this infliximab, the monoclonal antibody, and in fact, it's very high. In other words, there's plenty of drug there but he's really inflamed and he's not infected. And in fact, he's getting worse. He's now more anemic, his elevated um, inflammatory markers have gone higher, and he's more um, uh, hypoalbuminemic as well, which is an important prognostic marker here. So we had a variety of discussions with him, um, which is an entire area of Corey's research that I'm summarizing in one bullet point, <laughs> sorry. Um, but Corey is really, just for those who don't know, um, has, led the, has led the world in our understanding of decision analysis and um, uh, discussions with patients to help them understand therapies and making these types of decisions. Uh, and the reality is that we go to surgery. And that's the next point of the story. Surgery for ulcerative colitis, especially in young people, um, is thought to be curative for the ulcerative colitis, but not curative for IBD. The most common surgery that's performed is they have a proctocolectomy, and usually through a staged approach, end up with a neo-rectum that's made out of small bowels, sometimes called a pouch, a J-pouch, or an ileal pouch. Uh, and what it essentially is is the small bowel is folded into a larger um, reservoir and then sewn to the anal canal or to a cuff of rectum. Now, this is important because this leads us to our next problem. So this is what a J-pouch can look like when you're on the inside. You can appreciate that's the seam of where they sewed the small bowel together. And then there's a, a blind loop over here, which is the tip of the J that's literally formed by this. And on the right is the afferent limb that will go up into the rest of his small bowel. So this is the tip here, the end of the J-pouch. And then if we go up to the right is the rest of his small intestine. Now, J-pouches um, in many patients are very uh, well tolerated and highly functional and they don't suffer from problems because their colitis is gone. The target organ of the ulcerative colitis is gone, except that we have a problem with um, about half our patients who develop inflammation of the J-pouch. Now recall that ulcerative colitis patients don't have inflammation in their small bowel normally. So why do they get inflammation in their small bowel after we give them a J-pouch? Well, here's what his J-pouch looked like six months after his, last after his last surgery, when they took down his diverting ileostomy and put his J-pouch into continuity. That's not good, right? Um, we treat it with antibiotics, and unlike what I just took you through in the stepwise approach to managing ulcerative colitis, we can use antibiotics to treat this condition. Well, why would that work when it didn't work to treat ulcerative colitis and all the prior research people have tried to do? So this is a very interesting problem. And if you're a clinical researcher or a translational researcher, this is a perfect problem to study inflammatory bowel disease because 
The pouch model is a human model of IBD in a patient who's susceptible. They already have IBD. You're removing the target organ, and they have a risk that's predictable of getting inflammation again. So this is a great way to study what's going on in a lot of these patients. So now I'm going to shift to what I told you, which is 10 years of research summarized in five slides. So um, we're very fortunate at the University of Chicago to have some brilliant people working in the microbiome. And one of the things that we love the most is that they're interested in what we're doing and vice versa. So we meet with them frequently and we say, here's a clinical problem we don't understand. And uh, a number of years ago, I went to uh, my partner, really, Gene uh, Chang, and I said, the, there are two models in IBD that are perfect setups to look at the microbiome. One is the J-pouch situation where the patient's disease is removed, but then they get inflammation, so we know it's going to come and we can follow them. And the other one is a patient with Crohn's who's had a bowel resection where the disease comes back. Those two situations are perfect for us to start studying what's going on in susceptible individuals and to try to understand what's happening in the gut microbiome. We've learned a lot about the bodily microbiomes. This is a huge area, of course, and I'm going to summarize briefly only to say that the GI microbiome has had a lot of interest, not only for GI illnesses, but I bet many in the room already know that we've learned that this is probably related to metabolism, obesity, and a variety of other um, conditions as well. Most people living in the same area, and certainly most in the same family, will have generally similar microbiota of their gut. Um, there's maybe a 10% variation among people. So the general distribution of types of organisms, bacteria and yeast for sure, um, but probably virome, although that's less well studied, are similar in healthy individuals. But what we've learned about in IBD is that there's variations. And not only is there variations, but there's a lot of variability over time. And in fact, it can vary based on therapy. It varies based on UC or Crohn's. It varies based on being in remission or having active disease. This is a very complex ecosystem. What we haven't quite figured out yet is, is it a chicken or an egg? Is this all happening because of the immune system, or is the immune system reacting to what's happening in the microbiome? Well, there's been some interesting work now that has led to um, a number of discoveries, a couple of which I'm going to share with you. We love studying pouches um, in order to understand this better, because you start with someone who's had their disease removed. You follow them over time with a predictable risk that they're going to develop inflammation. It's very easy to get in there with a small scope and sample the mucosa, and uh, we can uh, actually compare it to a group of people who get J pouches but never develop inflammation, which is the familial polyposis population. So they need to have their large intestines removed because they have a risk of colon cancer, but they don't get pouchitis. This is only in the people with IBD who develop pouchitis. So you've got a comparator population who has the same anatomy, and this doesn't happen. So we've worked with a variety of wonderful people um, at Argonne National Labs, which is part of the University of Chicago, the Marine Biological Institute, which is in Massachusetts, but is also part of UFC, and they study the, the ocean and ecosystems. It's a very interesting group. And uh, partnering with the Mayo Clinic, which is where we get some of our control populations. And what we've been doing is looking at pouches. And we've been sampling the area that becomes very inflamed, and interestingly, the area that doesn't, which is the small bowel above the pouch. That doesn't become inflamed. And asking the question, well, what's going on here from a molecular genetic and microbiota uh, perspective that might explain why people get pouchitis? So in a prospective series of experiments, and now additional ones that we've designed, we've actually found a few things. 
The first amazing thing is that the small bowel undergoes metaplasia and starts looking like a colon and functioning like a colon. So when you take the small bowel and you connect it to the anal canal, it turns on about 6,000 genes that were otherwise not being um, coded or transcribed. And those genes make the small bowel start having what is essentially a functional large intestine. It's an amazing thing. And what triggers that? Well, it must be exposure to the environment, we think. And the very interesting thing is that the small bowel just above the pouch stays small bowel. doesn't change into a uh, colon at all. So they call that colonization, uh, and it's a fascinating uh, problem that we've uh, discovered. But it's not sufficient to say that the genetics have changed. Go back, go back to yep. You say it looks like the non-UC patients don't undergo colonization. That's right. So this is the people with FAP. That's our control population. The people who have inflammatory bowel disease have these genes all turned on. So it's interesting to, under, to understand why that might be as well. So some of those genes actually code for what I was showing in the next slide, which is immune activation. Uh, and in a susceptible individual, there must be a pathway that turns on some of these genes related to that immune activity. So there are some genes in the pouch of a FAP patient that get turned on as well. The ones they're looking at are the different ones um, in the IBD population. I appreciate you catching that. Uh, there's also a suppressed xenobiotic me metabolism that's been appreciated as one of these genetic markers. And now they're trying to map all these pathways to understand what exactly is going on. And of course, the natural question is, is this similar to what we see in the colon of people with ulcerative colitis, which is a whole separate line of validation. So what else is happening is, of course, what we think is going on with the microbiome in the pouch. And in fact, um, using some uh, sequencing uh, techniques that a couple of our translational researchers, and in particular, uh, a young man named uh, Murat Aaron, who came to us from the Marine Biological Labs, we've actually identified um, a strain of bacteroides that was present in people who got pouchitis but only present in the people who had those genetic markers as well. So you had to have the two problems. You had to have the colonization of the pouch with all those genetic markers turned on, and you needed to have this strain of bacteroides in the small series of patients that have seen it. You could have the bacteroides in the pouch if you have FAP, but you wouldn't get pouchitis. Now, you might say, well, bacteroides, that's a fairly common organism. Why hasn't this been found before? Well, it's a specific strain of bacteroides, and what uh, Marin has done with this group that you see here that was very unique is that he was able to get below the usual descriptor of the microbiome, which is fairly high level, more like um, genus and species level, all the way down to these specific organisms. And what was unique about bacteroides? Well, they found some very specific segments that were being coded in their DNA that led them to have a protein coat that um, my colleague Gene calls a cloaking device. He's a Star Trek fan. Uh, and the coat, which has been described with other organisms, actually is thought to make it resistant to antibiotics or resistant to the immune system clearing it. So you can imagine, at least in theory, that in a susceptible individual who has these genes turned on in that J pouch, who has this particular organism for whatever reason that's there, maybe it was there because they had it when they had their colitis to begin with, and now they're just um, recolonizing, um, it's triggering an immune reaction, but you can't get rid of it. And the therapies we use only suppress the immune system, but aren't getting at the underlying cause of this. Now, the second part of this discovery is that it may not just be that strain of bacteroides. It's actually that the DNA segments that code for this coding can be um, 
transfected into other organisms surrounding them. So they're describing this as a DNA cassette that is actually exchanged among organisms. So it may not be that we need to look for a specific type of bacteroides, but rather we need to look for these coats or develop a new treatment um, to target that uh, resistance. So it's a very interesting, this is novel and this is new, um, but it's something that we're now working to try and validate. So we've taken that human model of pouchitis to try to understand what's going on and get back to that idea that IBD is environment, genetics, um, and the immune system uh, interacting in some predictable way. So our proposed model now, based on what I've summarized of a huge number of people's uh, hard work, is the distinction between somebody who ends up with a healthy pouch who has FAP and somebody who has ulcerative colitis that when they're put into continuity develops inflammation over time and what might be going on with these uh, described novel pathobionts. So I know I've covered an awful lot. I started with a patient, um, and I brought you all the way through to the translational work that some of my colleagues are doing. Um, but we've learned a bit, and we have a lot more to do, but I'm very optimistic for the future. I routinely tell our patients that um, I expect we're going to have cures for some types of IBD in the next five to ten years, and I think I've given you some clues about how we might get there. Um, but I also am telling my patients that while we're waiting for that, we should be using our effective treatments with evidence space and make sure we understand that they're under good control so we can help improve the quality of their life. There's a lot of people to thank. This is obviously, um, especially the research at the end, represents a huge collaboration as anything like this might. Uh, we have this new microbiomedicine program that Gene actually directs, uh, and obviously uh, colleagues from a variety of other places that are helping to support our ongoing work in this regard. And this is my IBD center group. It's not our digestive disease, but just the IBD center. It has our surgeons, radiologists, pathologists, and of course our wonderful nursing staff. Thank you very, very much for having me visit. Thank you, David. Questions and comments? David, thanks for an elegant and eloquent talk, as always. Um, that last polarization model is fascinating. Um, as you well know, and maybe most of the audience don't know, what we call Crohn's disease which um, is, like a lot of things in IBD, really a phenotypic clinical observational survival. But I think we've all learned one of the challenges of that is that it doesn't really act like Crohn's disease uh, that we see in somebody who doesn't have a pouch. Um, when we talk about the therapies, uh, I'm guessing that you guys have an interest in, in that and you've looked at that with this sort of polarization model. Do you have any observations that you can share with us about that yet, or is that um, it's a, a great question, Campbell, and the answer is that we uh, have some early information about it, and what we're seeing is that the genetic changes that we're measuring in the small bowel of the pouch are also present in the afferent limb above the pouch in the people who develop that type of phenotype. So we um, have been calling it pre-pouch ileitis and having some different names to be a bit more descriptive, not only because we're trying to be careful about how we categorize these patients for research, but also because a patient who has been told they have ulcerative colitis and that they're going to go to surgery and have a J-pouch doesn't want to hear that they now have Crohn's disease. Um, so that's the other challenge clinically. But you're right, uh, the different patterns of pouch inflammation are really important to distinguish here because we'll end up in this, with the same problem we've had all these years if we're 
just lumping everyone together and trying to sort this out. So that's really why the clinical folks who are collaborating with us uh, are important, because we've been saying to our researchers, don't look at this pouch when you're doing this analysis. Here's the pure pouches and the pure pouchitis that we should start with, and then we'll look at these other ones. But we have a few patients who had what you would call Crohn's of the pouch that do have a different um, pattern. William, I know you've been putting together some thoughts here. <laughs> um, about the cloaking device. Yes. Is I call it a shield. <laughs> is it a target of the humoral immune response, or is it neglected by the humoral immune response? Don't know yet. Don't know yet. So um, the separate line of research that's going on with all of this is that they're now creating uh, intestinal organoids from these patients and then exposing them to these um, these bacteria and trying to get a better sense for what's happening at a cellular level and then looking at more at the humoral responses. But this is all new. So I can't, I can't tell you. I mean, I'd love to talk to you more about this if you have thoughts. Yeah, so the question about extra intestinal manifestation, I didn't even touch on that today, uh, but 30% of our IBD population has uh, problems outside of their bowel, and the most common one is joint problems, as you well know, by asking that question, as well as skin. And um, uh, the different theories about it are that, number one, um, the bowel inflammation and the immune system reaction to what's happening in the bowel cross-reacts with similar antigens or other problems that are in the skin or other organs. The other theory is that this is a parallel inflammatory response in a systemically uh, reactive individual. Uh, and some of the evidence that indirectly has supported that theory has been when we've used um, one of our novel therapies that just targets the bowel by blocking integrins and um, leukocyte migration into the intestine, we've uncovered extraintestinal manifestations in those patients, but that's indirect. So um, the question then, of course, is does the microbiome trigger it in some other way that we don't know yet? And I, I'm not aware of the research to tell us that that's what causes joint pain, um, but it's an interesting question, and we're not there yet. Um, so thinking about this, the whole field of stool transplants, I, I wonder if if you take the BFRAG that has that's a wonderful question. So um, could we somehow um, overwhelm or um, create a um, competing environment for these organisms? The um, study of fecal transplants for ulcerative colitis has evolved. Uh, we did a small study in Chicago uh, recently where we were able to, using some of the same technologies, we were able to show which organisms are more likely to uh, colonize after donation. Uh, and uh, one of the fellows working with us is from Australia where they just did the largest, um, actually, sham-controlled study of fecal transplants. And um, they're doing the microbiota analysis of that now. So it's a reasonable thought that perhaps you can restore balance, but the challenge in IBD has been um, that these patients have a highly variable microbiome in their bowel, and we're not sure if that's 
we're just measuring downstream effects of an active immune system in the gut, or if in fact that's something else that's going on, that even after transplant they're going to end up relapsing through it. But targeting the microbiota as a way to, to treat this as opposed to just thinking we're going to give them some super antibiotic combination is likely to be a much more effective strategy once we know what's happening here. We're going to Peter over there, and then back to Corey. I'll try to get all of you. <laughs> just a point of clarification. Why, why do antibiotics work in couchitis but don't work in sort of native disease? If, if in both cases the nephrage is somehow involved in your... We, we, that's an excellent question. We don't really know. I will tell you that... Um, 50% of people who get pouchitis will respond to a single course of antibiotics and then they're back on track and do well. 10% of patients will have recurrent or chronic pouchitis. Uh, about 3% will develop what later is a, what's considered pouch failure where they actually have to have it removed. We don't understand it. The only simplistic explanation is that we're treating an earlier version of the disease where we can capture it and modify the microbiota simply with an antibiotic um, and that's why we get them under better control. But we don't have a good explanation for why it doesn't work in the native disease. But there have been placebo-controlled studies of antibiotics and colitis uh, going back uh, to the early 90s and then lots of uncontrolled experiments with antibiotics um, for many years that have not been able to demonstrate um, results in UC. So you're right, something else is making it harder to manage in the, the larger intestine. When you talk about the Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question. So there's a few things that they're measuring here. Um, it looks like uh, they are measuring, uh, or what we're seeing is both functional changes that are similar, and I took out some of the slides because of the interest of time, but they've demonstrated some functional similarities to a J pouch and a healthy, a normal colon uh, in the sense of how it reacts to um, stimuli from the environment, specifically standard bacterial triggers. Uh, and they've also been able to demonstrate some of the um, changes uh, morphologically. So when you look at the, the cell structure, the villi become flattened, they start developing what looks like little crypts. Um, our pathologists have been describing this for years, as is always the case when there's going to be uh, advanced in science. Often careful observation was seeing some of these changes for a long time, um, but we didn't know how to characterize it or describe it better. So it's both looked, as you might expect, it both is what you see um, histologically, morphologically, uh, as well as some of the early stuff that we're seeing now is functionally. Um, there's much more to be done here, clearly. It's, a fa it's fascinating, um, and it's not subtle. That when we had the, these patients where we had very pure pouchitis and we had the FAP patients, um, these were strongly statistically significant distinctions between them. Uh, it's a fascinating thing. We're very excited. And of course, the next question was, well, let's show it in UC. Let's find it in ulcerative colitis now and understand if this is what's driving UC in these patients. Uh, thanks, David. This is really great. Uh, I was going to make, maybe it's finishing if we're just at the top of the hour here, but have you uh, finished with channeling uh, Dr. Kirsten here? Thinking about what you know, we know now, even in just in the past few years since he's passed away, the time that you've spent in Asia and seeing uh, what's happening there and learning from our colleagues there, 
and putting this all together. You know, what's, what's going on there? You know, that's a, a different situation, but also another amazing model, not quite an individual patient model, but an epidemiologic model for us to learn. You know, what are you learning by, I know you've spent a lot of time over there, collaborating with colleagues over there, putting it together with what we've learned here. What's, what's the next step, and what does Asia teach us? The people in China and um, Korea and Hong Kong, where our good friend is, um, think that this has clearly been environmentally driven and that the most likely explanation has been changes in their diet or the source of their food that has led to the um, disruption and imbalance of the gut microbiota. Um, they have slightly different genetic profiles than the Caucasian population and European population, uh, so that's of interest. Um, but the colitis that they're getting now looks similar to ours. In the early days, they thought that they had a milder version of colitis, as you probably know. Uh, so the theory is that when you disrupt the microbiome, either the organisms that are virulent um, emerge and are no longer competitively inhibited, or that this is a complex global infection that is now traveling the world and in susceptible individuals the disease is popping up uh, and that it's being transmitted in some form that we haven't identified yet. So that's their theory about this as well. But in the, I was, the first time I was in China was 2005 and they told me that none of their patients needed surgery. And the last time I was there was three weeks ago and we had a whole session on how to manage J-pouch complications. So, you know, the disease has emerged and it's real and um, there's a great opportunity for us to study that um, and they have some infrastructure that I think will help us do that, but it's a great question. To get back to Kersner, and I'll end with this, um, he gave grand rounds to the Department of Medicine when he was 98, and that grand rounds was titled uh, The History of the University of Chicago Medical Center, Seven Decades of Personal Observation. Um, and it went so well that the week after he gave grand rounds at age 98, he said, I'm going to do it again when I turn 100. So when he turned 100, he gave grand rounds, uh, and it was titled The History of GI. And in preparation for this, I would go to his apartment, I would get him the same food that you had when you visited him, and on Sunday mornings he would tell me stories and I would help him make slides. Uh, I called it my Sundays with Joe Kersner, like Tuesdays with Maury. Um, and uh, I would video some of these discussions, and I, would say, I said to him one day, I said, come on, you know what causes IBD, you've just been waiting to tell the world. <laughs> And he said, um, it's an infection. He's like, I know you're going to find it. He said, just keep looking, and you're going to end up discovering that it's just a complicated infection. So, you know, it takes a lot of work, but I think we're starting to understand why we haven't seen it sooner, uh, and we're starting to get some really intriguing signals. Well, David, thank you so much for being here.